and standing your ground. And again, you said this to me on my check level four, you know, it takes a real, real warrior to do that. So you have to be your own personal development, you know, your own 4D development and those sorts of things have to be very, very strong to be able to stand up against the masses that you're going to come against when you bring up these philosophies, which let's face it, they're, they're not, um, it's not like there's some scientific uh, study or research that's done that just completely changes the paradigm. We, what we're saying is we're saying, you know, drink, drink um, filtered water, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is human performance coach, Greg Muller. With over 20 years of experience consulting on leadership and in the elite performance industry, Greg has worked with a diverse clientele from elite athletes and special forces military to sports teams, business executives, and corporate organizations. He resides in Galway, Ireland, where his consulting company, Lead the Pack, is located. Greg is also the founder of Pure Athlete, which provides recovery and performance products for active people. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for a special offer from Greg. Well, Greg Muller, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. It's exciting to be able to share you with my listeners and uh, get some of that wisdom out of your great mind and uh, tap into some of the extensive experience you have as a specialist conditioning athletes and people of all types. So uh, welcome. Thanks, Paul. And great to be here. Yeah. You know, Greg, uh, years, uh, several years ago, I don't know how many years ago, you sent me an amazing picture of you in a rugby pitch with championship trophy trophies from three leagues in the same year, if I remember right. Can you tell me exactly what that uh, what those trophies were and, and what your accomplishment was that was that we're so excited about? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I after leaving the military, when I left the military, um, I was I was contracted to work with the professional rugby team, and that, and back back then that was in two thousand and one, I think it was. Um, rugby was fairly still in its in its infancy in terms of professionalism, and uh, I worked, went in to work with the Auckland Blues and Auckland Rugby, so they. Auckland Rugby is part of the Blues franchise, and um, we won the Super Rugby Championship, the National Division One uh, Championship, and also we won the Ranfurly Shield, which is the oldest shield in New Zealand rugby, all in one calendar year. And no team had ever done that prior to that, so um, it was a fairly significant haul um, of trophies and a great achievement for the guys that were involved. You know. Yeah, and, a, and a, a very impressive achievement for you because it's uh, very unusual to be the strength and conditioning coach for three championship teams in the same year. So great work! Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it's great. It was great. Uh, yeah, we we. I mean, I suppose uh, one of the things that happened is fruit ripened at the right time as well, Paul. You know, we had a lot of young guys coming through who just went on from when I got there. I think we had say what they would call two All Blacks, two guys that were All Blacks, current All Blacks. We had 20 when, once we got through that, winning all that, you know. Wow. Yeah. So That's great. pretty, Im very impressive. You know, just for the, the listeners, you know, uh, I'll just share Greg's uh, level four check practitioner. You completed level four quite a long time ago. Do you remember what year that was? 
2007, I think. 2007. So, yeah, that's been a while, Al. Yeah. That's easy for me to remember. That's the year I bought my car. So that was an exciting event. I won't forget that. Still love driving my Audi A3 and getting myself in trouble with it. But uh, can you just give everybody an overview of your developmental background so we can get a sense of who you are and, and the journey to how your success unfolded? Yeah, sure. Um, well, like I said just earlier, I was in the military. I had joined the military as a 17-year-old. And um, and uh, initially, I started out as a vehicle mechanic. Um, you, you know, I didn't really know as a youngster exactly where my career was heading and stuff like that, but thought that was the sort of route for me. Found out very quickly that I, I didn't have any inclination towards that, uh, that trade and like that. Um, to the point where I was actually sending my own car away to get fixed by mechanics. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I really enjoyed the physical training side of the military and um, and so did, did some exploring into how to become a physical training instructor and um, in no short time was down at the gym, signing out for courses and then did my selection course, which is a, as you're, as you're ex-military as well, you know the, the background was a week from hell to uh, determine whether you had the the, the uh, characteristics and the, I suppose the skill set they were looking for to, to continue on with the training. So I got through that and um, went on and completed my all my physical training courses in the military. Um, ended up as an instructor and senior instructor of the Vizier School in the military. And it was at that time really that I, I met you. Uh, 1996 or 7, I think it was, you were in Christchurch in New Zealand. I got a phone call from one of my uh, one of the guys I had worked with previously, and he said he'd seen you in Auckland, and said you got to go see this guy, like you know. Um, and you know, you hear that a lot, and so I was, I was a little bit wary because the weekend before I'd been on eight flights in in two days to get to around to three different locations around New Zealand because I, I was keen to learn, and right. I'd been to all these things and thought oh, there's not a lot on this, you know. But so I thought, oh. Okay, I'll go down to Christchurch. Well, within two hours, you had me convinced that I needed to learn a lot more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember the, the Canterbury Crusaders. You, you actually were doing some work with them at the time, and uh, they, they had walked into the uh, group as well. Um, and and even earlier than that, so once I when I first started the gym in, in, the, in the New Zealand Army, uh, I just happened to be in the camp where our elite forces were, our special air service guys were. So I worked with the, the sergeant who was in charge of them, and he just said the day I walked in the gym, you're working under me. And it was kind of one of those times in your life where it's, this is either going to work or it's not going to work, because they really didn't talk to me for the first six months, you know? Wow. They tested me out in every way they could, and I knew that if I, if I slipped up, that was game over for me, both as a as a career option and uh, having any, any any dealings with those guys, um, so that that was kind of the start. And then, but, but that that there was a real juncture when I met you and thought, man, we, we're missing a lot here, and there's a lot of things we we are not doing well. So uh, that was a huge huge part. Was a huge um, uh, decision, or I suppose a point in my career where things changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't, if I remember right, didn't the uh, New Zealand military pay for your check training? They did for some of it, quite a bit of it, yeah. And we looked, 
we really pushed hard uh, as I became, became more senior in the New Zealand military to um, to, to bring check in, and we did do do it to quite a, a reasonable extent. Um, but like with anything with the with government organisations, you know, it's never easy to turn the wheel quickly. So um, <clears throat> we didn't get it quite as far as we wanted to, and a lot of the key people influences there, like myself, left, and then things started to change again. You know. Right. I remember there was another guy from the New Zealand military that came through some of my training with you. Am I right on that? Yeah, you are. Yeah, there's quite. There's actually quite a few guys. Um, Dean Aiken was actually the first one. Uh, right. Yeah, so I worked with Dean really hard with the medical people to try and get a lot of us, lot of us into our rehabilitation um, and just, you know, educating soldiers on, on a lot of the, the fundamentals. And, right. And, uh, and I'll just quickly tell the story. Like, we, we went down to your your talk in Christchurch which was on core conditioning and one of the other instructors from the school came with me and we had two students who had just finished our advanced course with us and at the first break the two students come up to me and said can you explain that to me what he just said <laughs> and I said well I might be able to do it if I gave me a couple of days to work my way through that but uh, <laughs> I said but the other thing that happened is we had a course on at the time we had, a, we had our, our very uh, basic course and our six-week course on and myself and the other instructor were back on Monday morning assessing one of the, uh, the instructors we were teaching uh, in a lesson, and we both dropped our folders at the t- same time and said, we've got to change our business here. Like, we, we're the ones contributing to the problems with the, the soldiers. And that was a big catalyst for talking to the medical people, the doctors and stuff like that, you know? Right. Yeah. And so once you, uh, once you left the military – how, where, where were you at by the time when it went in the scope of your check training? When did you leave the military as far as where you're at in your check training? I was a level two check practitioner and I think I'd only completed lifestyle uh, level one when I was still. Okay. In, so yeah. you continued your training while you were working with uh, rugby players? Yeah, definitely. Because I could see the future. I said, like, you know, um, what you've done is open up my eyes to so much more. And as I said, you know, like the conditioning, um, as you know, from the military, it, it really is, it's very basic. It's quite primal, you know. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd come through that system. And what we were really doing was, we, we were, and I, I, I've even said this to the, to the guys still involved that I know still serving, um, we're really just class takers or just taking sessions. We're not – you know, at, a, at a, any other level, really dealing with some of the issues in terms of, you know, if people have got orthopedic injuries and, um, but, but I guess at the, at, on another level, we're not really contributing in any great deal to their, uh, performance. It's just really getting them to swap a blood, sweat and tears type of workout type thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. And as you know, it, it, it can, uh, eliminate a lot of soldiers that, if they were handled properly, could end up being very good soldiers. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and same with athletes, you know, and that's when I knew when I was working with the elite athletes, when you get to that level, you know, those guys are costing an organization a lot of money. Yes. So, you know, you've got to be on top of your game to make sure you're not contributing to that, which, as you well, you know as well as I do, um, unfortunately, still to this day, you know, a lot of the conditioners are contributing to that problem. 
Yeah, we'll get into that too in just a bit here. I'm wondering how did the lessons in your education process ultimately lead you to making changes? Well, we already talked about the soldiers, but how did your Czech training influence how you conditioned rugby players? So in other words, what was missing when you got into rugby and then what did you bring to the table for them? Well, I suppose, it, again, it was it was still quite, you know, like the professional sport in New Zealand was still quite new. Um, you know, the internet at that stage was still, we're still in this early, early uh, stages. Early stages, yeah. So, you know, like the, the amount of information that was available was, was still quite limited at that stage. And so <clears throat> attending a lecture like yours opened up a lot of um, thoughts and I suppose new ideas and things like that. So we were then grappling for how can we get more information, how can we learn more of this stuff. Um, and and um, I guess because it had been through that process where, you know, the old old coaches became the, the, the fitness coaches and they were the guys training the team, there was still a lot of the old processes being used. Um, and... <clears throat> I, I suppose once we started bringing in the new information, there was a lot of kickback from, you know, as usual, as usual, yeah, from a lot of a lot of areas, even the players, because players hadn't been brought up to think about even prehabilitation exercises and joint mobs and you know basic stuff like that. Um, you know, to the point where we had one player uh, who who was you know world class player, one of the best, was the best of the time in, in, in that that era in the world and um, wouldn't do leg weights because he felt that would slow him down, you know? Wow. Yeah. It's, I, I ran into all that stuff with the army boxing team as well. And then over the years working with elite level golfers, they all had a backlash reaction as soon as I tried to give them any kind of resistance training. But of course I had to explain it to them. And once I did, they understood you know, where the phobia came from and how it was based on unintelligent use of resistance training with athletes that led to the kinds of problems that, you know, create the stigma that a lot of athletes have. Yeah, and I suppose the, the other area you get the backlash in is, um, is within your own industry, with your own with your own trade. And what, what would tend to happen is, you know, you get the guys who hadn't been initiated into these new philosophies and new thinking or new processes. And, and so they would be quick to try and pull you back down again, you know? Yeah. Well, misery loves company and people really resist change, you know, and I think you are probably well aware that I had to, uh, I had to deal with that in the medical community, the professional medical, like medical doctor community, the, physical therapy, chiropractic, osteopathic, strength and conditioning, personal training. It was for, for me, it was, it's just probably the first 20 years of my career was just like I was swimming up a <laughs> violent river. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, and I think uh, I can certainly, like that was the, the river I started swimming too because, you know, I was an advocate for a huge change. And, and like I said, when you're investing so much into these athletes and, you're just seeing people trash them, um, and when once once the rubber band's been stretched, as they say, you can't go back, and you can't yeah. un can't unsee things. So, I was watching things happening, thinking, okay, we've got we've got hamstring injuries, just wait to happen here, you know. Um, 
and and as a result, like uh, yeah, there was a huge backlash, and and it was a very hard fought battle to get through some of those things. Um, you know, and like you know, your training, as you know, was opening up the ideas of the fact that a circadian rhythm could uh, potentially be the the root cause of a calf injury. Right. You know, and so that's that's a long way from someone who's just trying to get someone under a bar to just push as big a weight as he can. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what do you do when you meet the truth, right? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the uh, one time I was chatting with Laird Hamilton, we were hanging out, and for some reason I asked him, he he said something about the truth, and I looked at him and smiled and said, "I said, well, Laird, what is the def? What is your definition of the truth?" Yeah. And he smiled at me and he said, "The truth is what works." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, there's the tr- there's the truth, right? And uh, I'm sure that you've had many instances in your career of with your knowledge of looking at how athletes are training and and living and predicting injuries. Lo and behold, there they are, right? Yeah, the other thing is, interesting enough, is because as my journey unfolded also through the Czech program, um, what, I, what I also started doing, and, and I know that we'll come to this at some point, is the spiritual involvement. But I started going into, because the industry couldn't teach me some of the things I really wanted to learn. Like, um, And so I started attending lectures, you know, like, uh, and I'd turn up the only, only male in the room. But what, right. <laughs> what, what I found though is that the the information was almost gold in terms of you know some of the the psychological psychological aspects of how you know human behaviour and um, how to deal with some of the challenges that athletes would have and things like that. Um, so I was coming back and again the rubber band was just stretching so much. Um, it, it 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 became a challenge for me I guess in the end whether I could still deal at that level. Yeah, it is It is hard. You know, I've worked, as you know, for many, many professional sports teams, and for the most part, they're desperate for help or they wouldn't call me, but then I would explain what was going on, and I'd get looked at like I was from outer space or something and <laughs> have to sit there and go through long explanations. But actually – in all fairness, aside from working with you and the All Blacks and the various consultations you and I did together, um, the Canberra Raiders and Mel Meninga. Mel Meninga was probably one of the most amazing people I ever worked for because of his total open-mindedness. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Living 4D with Paul Check and Greg Muller. This month is Movement Month at the Czech Institute, and all month long we're focused on helping you build more creative, exciting, and effective workouts. And we've teamed up with Czech practitioner and kettlebell master Mike Salemi to help you optimize your gains in the gym by using the versatile kettlebell. There are few people on this planet who understand kettlebell training like Mike. But the reason why Paul loves working with him is that Mike gets how to effectively incorporate kettlebell training into a truly holistic program. He understands how diet can affect your training. He understands how mental emotional stresses impact your performance. And he gets how the four doctors operate. That's why Paul recommends Mike to people who want to learn to work effectively with the kettlebell. <laughs> 
he knows how to fit that training in perfectly with your lifestyle. Which is why I was so excited to announce a special offer to our Living 4D with Paul Check listeners. Mike has created the Kettlebell Mastery online course, which is the definitive course on kettlebell training. With over 400 videos that take you from the very basics, like grip and positions, all the way to program design techniques and performance benchmarks, you will become your own kettlebell master. And now, through the end of June, all of our listeners can enroll in Mike's Kettlebell Mastery online course at a 20% discount. Plus, you'll receive a special Paul Check mini course on working in. So head on over to checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering dash the dash kettlebell. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash mastering dash the dash kettlebell. And when you check out, enter check 20 to claim your 20% discount. And now back to Paul and Greg. I think I told you the story of when I first went to work for the Raiders and I was waiting in the waiting room. Did I tell you about that? Yeah, you did, yeah. So uh, I'll just tell it for the uh, listeners. But anyhow, they hired me because their entire first string was badly injured and they were worried how they were going to make it through the next season. And one one or two of their strength coaches had uh, taken a couple of workshops with me. So they talked to Mel Meninga and said, you got to bring this guy in here. And uh, in the uh, waiting room, and as you know, their head office is in a casino, they had all the team pictures on the wall. And so I went, hmm, let's see who the, the team I'm working with is. And I found them on the wall and I looked at the picture and I found nine athletes that had severe atlas subluxations, which, as you know, I train you guys how to how to figure that out just by looking at somebody. And so I wrote the numbers on the jerseys down in a notebook on in my pocket. So when they walked me through to meet Mel Meninga, as soon as he shook my hand and we just said hello, I, I knew he had 10 athletes that was there to see. So I said, I'm just curious are any of the following players the ones I'm here to see? So I read off all nine numbers that I had identified as athletes that were probably having problems based on the fact that they had this significant atlas subluxation going on. And he looked at me and he goes, why did you ask me that? Mm. (laughs) So I said, I'll show you. And I walked him out to the poster and I explained to him what happens when the atlas is out of place and how detrimental that is to the nervous system and how it screws up posture and biomechanics. And he looked at me and like, in, like he'd seen a ghost and he goes, that's nine of the 10 people you're seeing. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, I had credibility walking in the door with Mal Meninga. He's like, this guy's some kind of weirdo, you know, but it's, you know, he knew I was for real. It was funny. And that's, and that's, I think, you know, the, what you said earlier was when you've got to sit down, I think you're out of space, you've got to sit down for hours and try and educate them. When you almost pull it, what they, they would consider a magic trick in front of them, you have their attention pretty quick, right? Yeah, on, exactly. I, I know something, but I need to know. And uh, yeah. I think that's yeah. one of the beauties of, 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 of the program that you teach. You know, I've pulled those sort of stunts myself a few times, and next minute you've got people, okay, I'm ready to listen to you, you know. Yeah. The other team that was just incredible to work with was the Chicago Bulls. You know, Alver Mill was just an amazing man and 
super open-minded and literally gave me an open door policy. He said, anytime you have something new that I can use and apply to the team, call me, we'll fly you down, pay you your rate. So I think I did seven consultations with the Bulls over the years during the Jordan era. Yeah. And they were the ones that really embraced the Swiss ball and my whole core conditioning concept, scientific back training, uh, a lot of assessment technologies. And, and I did some rehab work on a number of their players. But outside of the Raiders, uh, the Canberra Raiders and the Chicago Bulls, most of the teams were you know, begging for help, but then give you tons of resistance on implementation of that help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm curious, what are some of the key challenges you feel professional athletes face today with the way they manage themselves and are how they're managed by professional sports teams? And I know you work with a lot of elite amateur athletes as well. So we can just say elite athletes if you want. Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And, and as my career is uh, evolved, I've kind of um, almost gone back to my roots in terms of, you know, like uh, you can imagine what elite forces, you know, like you think of Navy SEALs, same yeah. special forces in the military, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. not military, which is, which is the equivalent of our special air service. Um, the, the way they operate, the culture that they create within those environments is very special and they're operating at very high levels. Uh, human performance and yeah. Um, so uh, as I as I went through my career and, and into the professional sports, what I started identifying was really there was a, a lack of what I would call good leadership. Uh, right. And so to answer your question, I guess what what's lacking for our, our athletes is those good leaders. And some of the sports are getting to that now. They're realizing, heck, it's you know it's more than you know, the, the coach who's, who's graduated from being a player who really didn't have the skill set to manage, um, let's say, 30 or 40 players on his roster, didn't know how to manage um, the sponsors, the, the media requirements, um, the supporters' requirements, all those sorts of things, and to deal with people um, really were, you know, the, the athlete was really at a, at a huge disadvantage when they were, just being treated like a, just like a pawn, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that, uh, drove me nuts about, uh, how athletes are managed like pieces of meat. And I'm, do you, I think you might remember, I, I worked for your team one time. Do you remember the guy that had the brachial plexus injury that I identified and yeah. his arm wasn't working? Yeah. And I, told the, the coach or your general manager, I said, look, this guy, if he plays one more game like this and gets hit on that shoulder, it could tear his brachial plexus. He could, it could ruin his career. And I said, are you really willing to trade one game for this guy's career? Yeah. And he looked at me and said, I don't care what you do. Get him in the game. I don't, I don't give a shit about anything beyond that. And I said, you, you, you don't care if you lose this athlete. He said, I need this guy in the game, and he just walked away. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you see a lot of that. Um, so, you know, the, under, you know, like the coaches are obviously under pressure and, uh, to perform. And, uh, you know, I went on to do my, my master's degree in, in leadership, um, innovation, and change. And as part of that research, what I did, and you may remember when I, I presented at the Czech conference in the UK. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> 
But, you know, the, the, the statistics are alarming. Like in the 92 professional soccer teams in, in the UK, the, the length of their tenure as a coach or what they call managers over there is only 11 months, you know? Wow. Um, and that, that, took, 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 that study took into consideration two managers that were really outsiders that have uh, been involved for over 20 years. So you take them out of it, it becomes even less, you know? Uh, well, one of the problems with that is that, you know, you know this very well, as do I. It takes a fair bit of time to get to know the inner workings of the athletes you're working with and how to not only manage each athlete effectively, because they're like children. You you know, not all kids sitting at the dinner table have the same disposition, the same needs, the same fears, the same values or w- whatever. But it also takes a long time to figure out how to get these guys to integrate together. So, you know, what you're describing really is this kind of leadership problem, but it's something that I see in the world today, especially with young people, because with the breakdown of tribal systems, we don't have any wise elders leading people. All the people that are of the age to be a wise elder are usually still children and adult bodies, and they're still stuck with video games and cell phones and chasing after money and, you know, using plastic surgery to pretend that they're younger than they are. And they're still so self-oriented that a lot of kids' grandparents are really um, just people that come visit, hand them a toy and say goodbye. And there's no real um, transfer of wisdom, how to deal with the stresses, the pains, the fears, and the challenges of life. So the athletes are really, in my opinion, just mirroring back the social condition. Oh, totally. And, you know, the, 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 um, the relationship is very transactional. It's rather than transformational, you know? Yeah, yeah. Again, like a commodity. Yeah. And what, you, what we live in a society, as you know, we're looking for instant results. And, you know, if it's not, if it's not a, just add water to this thing, this, you know, um, that's not quick enough sort of thing. So Well, it's true. And one of the things that I've seen many times in my career as a therapist, because as you know, a lot of the guys that are really in bad shape but have a lot to lose financially seek me out. But when they're treated like that, it actually can reach a point like if a, a great athlete gets injured, let's say, and then they trade him. And next thing you know, he goes from being first string or a captain, and now he's sitting on the bench watching everybody else play. And it can, you know, it uproots their entire family. Their kids have to go to other schools. But I've seen many cases where, where you could say that there's soul loss, like their, their sense of who they are, their sense of value as a human being has been so diminished that they go into a crisis of self. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, they, they literally become aware that they're uh, a pawn and, and that their, their, their life, their their needs have no value anymore unless they're scoring goals constantly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, like we, we all know that the, the, the way to get the best out of any individual is to get alongside them, get very clear with them what they value and, you know, what really makes them, what, what makes them work from the inner, inner self, you know? Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's why I, I, as you know, tell people all the time, you have to identify what someone's dream goal or objective is, not yours, but theirs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was giving a lecture on 
program design in the Aleco uh, at Aleco in Homstead, Sweden, and uh, they had uh, you know marketed this to strength coaches all over Scandinavia. So I had all sorts of people from Germany and the Netherlands and all over the place. But I began my lecture on how to design an exercise program with number one, what is the athlete's dream goal or objective? And so I asked everyone in the class, I said, can you effectively design a strength and conditioning program for an athlete without knowing what their dream goal or objective is? And they, they literally couldn't answer the question. Yeah. I said, how many of you have asked the athletes that you're coaching what their specific dream goal or objective is for being on the team or for their own conditioning. And not one hand of about 55 uh, strength coaches went up. Yeah. So needless to say, when I showed them the, the rationale behind it, <laughs> they were quite shocked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so what challenges have you faced as a holistic strength coach when offering athletes uh, – professional athletes or elite athletes for doctor guidance? Uh, well, there's been numerous challenges. And I suppose, um, you know, like like I said, it, you know, it still is to, to a large degree very primal when you're talking about group, um, teams, you know, um, and the lowest common denominator or what, let's say, the guy who can lift the biggest in the weight, in the weight room tends to have the biggest say around the group. Um, yeah. So the challenges have been, I mean, they're multifaceted. And this is what I would also say to anyone who's looking to get into the, into the industry or who is in the industry who hasn't got a lot of experience. Um, you know, because we live in this world where um, everyone wants quick results and, and, and things like that, you, you can end up yourself almost, you know, you've used the word before and, and we understand what it actually means is prostituting yourself to the point where you're telling people things that aren't actually good for them just to maintain a relationship or even keep your job. Um, right, yeah. And I, 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 you know, I'm at a point now in my career where, I, of course, I would never do that, and I haven't done that for a very long time. But I, I could see myself at, point, at points in time thinking, geez, I, you know, these guys are actually – they've actually got, actually got me under control. Um, yeah, isn't that that the shit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, this is not what I this is not what I stand for. This is not what I want to be like. Um, and standing your ground, and again, you said this to me on my check level four. You know, it takes a real, real warrior to do that. So you have to be your own personal development. You know, your own four D development and those sorts of things have to be very, very strong. To be able to stand up against the masses that you're going to come against when you bring up these philosophies, which Let's face it, they're, they're not um, – it's not like there's some scientific uh, study or research that's done that just completely changes the paradigm. We, what we're saying is we're saying, you know, drink drink um, filtered water, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, 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 of course, you know, like I had this discussion with CEOs and stuff like that when, like, uh, our guys are getting the, – the players get in trouble because they're at the pub afterwards and they're saying, well, they've got to go to the pub because – you know, they're, they're paying us so much money to put that name on the back of their shirt and things like that. Um, you know, but you, you, you have to then, I think uh, Gandhi put it well, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. And that only happens through further experience, 
greater knowledge um, and, and doing it doing it for a good good deal of time and and also developing yourself you know yeah so you know uh, I'll tell you an interesting story to highlight your point about the beer drinking I had a guy come to me injured from the uh, which was then the Oakland Raiders football team <clears throat> and uh, I'm looking at his diet log and 90% of what he was eating was hamburgers and uh, Doritos corn chips. Yeah. And I looked at this guy who's like, and, and to, to preface the story, uh, he, because uh, I was so busy, he started his assessment with Janet Alexander and, and uh, she was in the weight room with him in my gym and this is back when the office was on in on Volcat Avenue in Encinitas. So it was a number of years ago and I was training Chris and Janet. And uh, so she's in there doing some tests on him and she wanted to just kind of get a sense for how strong he was. So she was saying, okay, let me, she'd put a dumbbell on the floor. Let me see you pick that up with one arm and put it over your head. Well, the heaviest weight that he could clean and press with one arm was a 60 pound dumbbell. And that was it. Wow. And for a professional, you know, football player, which <laughs> that's not very much weight. And she, of, she, she had a bit of a surprised look on his face. So he looked at her, I guess, and said, well, is that not very good? <laughs> she said, for, for a professional football player, that's not very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, she said, Paul's a therapist and he can do a lot more than that. And the guy said, how much? And she pointed to the 160 pound dumbbell. <laughs> and she said, he lifts that thing with one arm all the time. <laughs> and he said, I don't believe you. I've never seen anybody do that. Yeah. And so she, I was in the middle of a therapy session with someone else and she comes in, she goes, I know you're busy, but I think I need your help for just a minute. This, I got this professional football player that's here to see us and he doesn't believe you can lift the 160 pound dumbbell over your head with one arm. She goes, would you please show him so he knows I'm not just toying with him. So I went out there and without even a warm up, I just clean and jerked the 160 pound dumbbell and put it back on the rack and smiled and walked away. And the guy looked like he'd seen a ghost. He's like, oh my God, how the hell did you do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, had, I've done that many times. Or similar, similar to that myself, you know, ringing wet. I was under 80 kgs and uh, doing a forward and backward lunge was 42 and a half kgs over my head. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know that. Sorry. I was just going to say that because of the very resistance that you and I are discussing here, which is very real, the one thing that really, really helped me was I could go in the gym and take whoever on the team wanted to challenge me. I'll say, okay, choose your lift, deadlift, squat, whatever. I don't care. And pretty much every single time I did that, I was the strongest guy in the gym. And I would tell them, you guys got to remember, I am a therapist. I am not a professional athlete. So if I can do this because I know how to train, imagine what you could do when you focus your training on training properly. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and to sort of go back to the start of this question, you know, like uh, you asked about how I've implemented and those sorts of things, uh, the practical or the, the visual or physical aspect of it, that, that works quite nicely. 
the, the difficulty comes when you are talking about diet changes. Um, yes. Those types of things because they can't see immediate results. Like when I first started in professional rugby, they were being given VIP cars to McDonald's, <clears throat> you know, and as soon as training finished, they were basically lined up in these, these brand-new Ford Falcons at the drive-thru at McDonald's thinking there's no, no problem with this. You know, I've done my training for the day. A reminder that this month is Movement Month at the Czech Institute and we're offering all our listeners a special discount on one of Paul's most important online courses, Scientific Back Training. If you are a serious strength and conditioning specialist, a rehabilitation specialist or a personal trainer, then this course will help you to train your clients more intelligently and effectively. This in-depth course with over 18 hours of online video will teach you about the functional anatomy of the torso and the biomechanical intricacies of trunk stabilization. You'll learn how to use a control systems approach as part of a holistic program for back pain, as well as how to identify joint restrictions that can affect the squat technique. The course also covers techniques for selecting stretches and exercises for preventing and alleviating back pain, as well as program design considerations, such as proper exercise technique, exercise selection, and exercise modifications. So if you've a serious desire to develop the best possible conditioning programs for yourself and your clients, then scientific back training is a must-have course. Get your copy now at checkinstitute.com forward slash SBT. That's checkinstitute.com forward slash SBT. And enter L4D back when you check out to receive your 15% discount. That's L, the number four, D, B, A, C, K. And now, back to Paul and Greg. Right. That, that's, what, that's actually what I was leading to. So the same player that I was just talking about that, that I lifted the weight for, that Janet, Janet wanted me to show him. Yeah. I looked at his diet log, nothing but Doritos, corn chips, and hamburgers, and the occasional uh, you know eggs or omelets from a restaurant or whatever. And I looked at his log and said to him, why in the hell are you eating nothing but hamburgers and Doritos corn chips? <coughs> he said, well, to be honest with you, I don't like to eat that way, but we are not allowed to take anything into the training facility unless it is manufactured by one of our sponsors. And we are sponsored by Doritos corn chips. And I can't remember who else it was, but every day they had hamburgers and Doritos corn chips and Pepsi Cola. That was the other thing. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm like, so you're telling me that you guys have to eat this. He said, anytime there's cameras around, we have to wear their hats. We have to eat their food and drink their soda pop. It's the rule. And I'm like, well, that rule is certainly making you weak. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, that's why it's a transactional type of uh, relationship generally. But I think uh, we've, we've certainly moved a long way. Um, in that, and you know, you've been a huge catalyst for that with a number of other practitioners or, or coaches around the world who've constantly been, you know, um, putting out the eat organic and stuff like that. And you know, even to the point where you know, I had athletes back in the early 2000s who were getting organic food bought to their door and things like that. That's great. Um, so you know, but to also answer your question a little bit further, what I also did is I realized. 
you know, a lot of these guys and not being in any way demeaning to them, they're just kids, you know? Yeah, and, exactly. And brought up through <clears throat> systems where they'd always been good. They um, left school and become straight into professional athletes. And so what I, what I quickly realized that they didn't have often, um, like I said, good leaders or good people around them, good mentors to really, to really get alongside them and help them with their dreams and goals and make them better. Um, but also I realized there's a gap often in their learning. You know, their knowledge is, like I said, taken off the guy who left the biggest waste in the gym, you know? And yep. if he's eating Doritos or he's eating donuts straight afterwards, they're eating donuts and Doritos afterwards. You're thinking, oh, well, that's what he does, so it must work. You know? Or steroids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, fortunately, you know, in, in, in New Zealand rugby, that I never saw that. Um, oh, good. But yeah, we, we never saw I never saw that. But um, uh, what was going to say, the point was, so what I also did is implemented um, when we traveled, because when we travel with the team, like whether it's internationally or nationally, We'd generally get there a day uh, before the game, maybe two days before the game. So we'd have a fair bit of downtime. So what I did is started implementing, um, I'd do presentations to the group. Oh, fantastic. You know, and it might be on, I can remember back in the 2000 and, ooh, 2003, 2004, maybe 2002, I was doing metabolic typing presentations of the team, for example. And, yeah. You know, once they, their knowledge, once they started to gain that knowledge, though, then they start, they were coming to you for questions. And then you knew you had the guy, you captured the guy. He's ready to start learning a bit more, you know? Yes, that's fantastic. And that's a great tip for potential coaches or therapists listening. And, you know, that's what I've, as you've heard me say a thousand times over the years, you've got to make sure that whatever you tell an athlete to do or even a patient to do is clearly connected to their dream goal or objective especially when you're using corrective exercise for athletes because they look at a blood pressure cuff and go, what the hell is that silly ass thing? I don't even want to be seen doing that in the gym. Yeah, yeah. But if you make it very clear to them how that specific exercise enhances their ability to accomplish their own goal or objective and they can connect the dots, then they'll do it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. So – I know you've done a lot of investigation and development with regard to mental health and performance for athletes, as, as you've kind of alluded to here. Can you share some of the highlights of your research and, and, and you got your master's degree in, in related fields here? And I'm wondering, uh, so what are the highlights of some of your research and how did you implement the strategies with the athletes that you've coached? I suppose um, if I go back a step to start, the, the answer to this question is – I was in shock when I left the military and started working professional athletes because I just expected them to be at a far greater level of development than I saw physically, emotionally, and mentally. You know, spiritually, that wasn't even on the cards at that point. Um, but what I saw is I saw athletes um, that could play the game. They were serious athletes on the field. But I thought, heck, if I got their work ethic, if I got their mental toughness to a point like I'd, we, we had in the military, I'm going to totally transform these players, you know? Yeah. Um, and what I saw is if you look at a linear line going up, um, now progress in anything in life is not perfectly linear. You have your ups and downs and things like that, but we all reach a point where our natural ability um, will we'll, we'll get to a, a sort of a ceiling point. And then right. – 
to get above that um, requires, you know, implementation of different um, um, activity strategies, strategies, yeah, and things like that. So, <clears throat> but one of, one, of the, one of the things I really saw that was lacking was the mental aspect of it, you know. Um, and if you look at most of the re- more recent research now, they're saying, you know, like we've we've pretty much exhausted a lot of the physical stuff. Like a, a team that you play in your league or in your tournaments or whatever, the physical ability, the ability to beat them physically is, you know, they're all at the same level pretty much. Uh, right. We are probably going to get a gain is is in managing their their recovery and their their performance or their their load their loads going in and out of um, games and things like that. Um, and I think there's still some gains to be had there, but there's the mental side of it and how they deal with, um, you know, like all the life stresses that around them. Um, but not only that, winning and losing, um, how you deal with that, the emotional side of things, losing a girlfriend. Like I was implementing, uh, for example, um, some of your – your, uh, I'm trying to think of the word now, like the um, daily performance uh, sheets. Oh, daily readiness. Daily assessment. readiness, that's the one here, sorry. I uh, just slipped my mind for a second there, but I, I was doing that. And I can remember, and I could give you two specific examples. One was we were having, having a training game for a big game, really big game. And a guy came in and he, I, the score was so low, and I looked at it and said, what's going on here? So I pulled him aside and he said, oh, I said, what's going on? Oh, I just broke up my girlfriend, you know? So you could see straight away he was all over the place and he trained really bad that day. Um, yeah. Another time we had an All Black who had just come back from an All Black tour and I used to do the daily readiness um, things probably about between three to five times a week. It just depended on what we were doing and things like that. And I adapted certain things to make to make it a bit easier for the players to, work, to fill out because some of them would get bogged down and they wouldn't fill out if it took too long and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, in one instant, we were playing a game, another big game we had, and so I used to get them to fill it out after their last meal before the game, so then they'd have about two and a half hours before the game. And his score was really, really low. And I I said I said to the coach, uh, I've just spoken to this player, right? he, and he came back to me and goes, I'm wiped out. I'm completely wiped out mentally and physically, emotionally. I just don't have anything to give to the team today. So he was such a key player for us. I went to the coach and said, what do you want to do? And he called the player and he said to the player, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, he said, if you give me 40 minutes, I'll take you straight off the pitch after that. I need 40 minutes out of you because this is such a big game for us, you know. And in doing that, what it did, it showed the player that this was of some value, this daily readiness sheet. So, right. You know. Um, but but also, like, the, the mental thing that you spoke about, um, I, I've done a lot of research with uh, – Angela Duckworth, her work on grit. Uh, there's some more recent research out now on grit and um, how perseverance, mindset, and wellness or well-being is all related around our ability to deal with this, the resilience or the daily stresses and the, the, the life stresses that we have. Um, and also Dr. Carol Dweck, her work in um, mindset, fixed and growth mindsets and Again, that comes back to our bounce back ability or our resilience around uh, how we deal with any any problems or any anything that you know can essentially upset our daily rhythms. You know, right? Uh huh. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, 
<clears throat> the grand majority of coaches in amateur and professional sports have no concept of how stress factors outside the immediate, immediate training and performing environment affect the athlete's performance. Um, you know, one of the things you just said is the player that you just described, there's a moment where he probably felt human, like someone actually cared about his needs to say, look, if you just give us 40 minutes, we'll get you off the field. Um, so, so it, it's great to see that you're implementing a strategy there where now the athletes being considered as a, a human being, not just a pawn. Yeah. Yeah. So how big of a factor for better or worse, do you feel that an athlete's inner life and their relationships outside the immediate team and conditioning or training or competition environment, uh, challenges the athlete, uh, when they're having, you know, things like relationship challenges or financial challenges or sexual performance challenges or whatever it might be? It's massive, massive, Paul. And, you know, uh, the more I looked into all of this, you know, I started out as a physical trainer in, in, in the military and it was all about push-ups and sit-ups, you know? Um, right. And as my journey has trans transformed and as I've moved through my own life and watched these things unfold. It's absolutely massive. And um, treating them, as you just alluded to, as a human being, it's a transformational. We're on this journey together. It's a relationship where we want the best out of you, yes, but it's got to be good for you as well, you know? Right, yeah. Uh, and you get huge buy-in from that. Um, and, you know, like I've – and I also talked about the leadership thing, and this is where – I do a lot of my work now with uh, coaches or leaders of the, the groups or organizations is because they need to understand this. And what's happening, and what's happening even very recently, I've seen it, for example, a coach who's quite a high-level coach now, I've uh, been involved with the international team, said to me, I don't give a shit what they do outside the this door. When they come in here, I need them to work for me. And, you know, like I said to him, you, you see how limited that is to, to what's going on in someone's life? They're bringing all their stuff with, with them. If, if you aren't, aren't interested in that or aren't dealing with some of those things, their performance has to be um, affected by those things, you know? Well, it's kind of like saying, I don't give a shit about what happens to my race car outside of the racetrack. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah. But last night there was, a, you know, a thunderstorm and, and it got struck by lightning. So you're not going to get much out of that car today, are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, I, sorry. I was going to say, I, I tell, you know, coaches and therapists and doctors and athletes, no athlete leaves their life at the front door of a gym. No, exactly. Their relationships, their financial issues, their health issues, their performance issues, whatever it is, it gets under the bar. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think that's another thing where – you know, you, you you learn these things slowly, like, you know, like if you had asked me that or talked about that to me 30 years ago when I was a physical training instructor in the military, I'd be like, oh, you know, I wouldn't probably be at that point of learning. But what we, what we want to do is we want to speed up the education process of anybody who's working with me or, you know, those sorts of things. And I guess that's part of this podcast, these types of things, you know? Right. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, even though, as you know, I've been doing this for 35 years, but 
my teachings have only touched a very small percentage of, of the people that could really benefit from the kinds of awareness that we're talking about. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as, as an example, I've been in gyms as I'm traveling around the world teaching, you know, doing something on a Swiss ball. And I've had trainers come up to me and say, you can't do that in this gym. That's too dangerous. That's, that's not how you use a Swiss ball. <laughs> I said, <laughs> so I just look at them and smile. I say, do you have a computer here? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Go on Google and type in Paul check comma Swiss ball and see what happens. And then I've had trainers come back to me this like right embarrassed, like, oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. But, um, you know, uh, let's see the, so the question I was going to ask you next is, um, I suspect you've seen how parents behave when they're attending sporting events with children of all ages. And I'm wondering what advice do you have for parents to help them better support their children's athletic development? Because I'm, you know, I've, I, have i have worked with a number of elite, uh, teenage and, and child athletes. I've actually had athletes that have come to me that their parents have put them into special schools yeah. that focus on sports development. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, to try to accelerate the, them into professional sports. And I've actually, I've worked with an, uh, a lot of, you know, figure skaters and um, skiers and hockey players and various childhood athletes and teenage athletes. And I've always been amazed at how their parents are doing exactly to these children what we've just described as management doing to professional athletes on teams. Yeah. They literally, I've had, in fact, I was doing research on steroids, steroid use, because I was some, I can't remember how, but I found out that some kid that I knew was using steroids. And I started wondering how common is steroid use amongst, you know, teenagers and, and young kids in sports. And I found out it's been a long time since I, I did this research, but basically it was something like it was 13% of Pop Warner football players, which is like, uh, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Um, you guys don't use that system over here. So sixth grade is a 12-year-old, seventh, a 13-year-old, eighth, a 14-year-old. 13% of them were found to be using anabolic steroids. And when the researchers investigated how they got the steroids in most cases it was their big brother or their father and the reason the steroids were given is two things they believed that without the steroids you wouldn't be able to compete with the other kids using them and two you wouldn't make it to professional sports because they thought all the athletes in professional sports were using steroids so really what shook down there is that the parents are actually trying to accelerate their child's growth and development so they can get onto a professional sports team with the hopes of financially stabilizing the family. And I saw this over and over again with parents that had elite level young athletes that they had already were, were preparing to turn that child into a meal ticket. And it, I'll tell you, I had some pretty heated discussions with some parents over that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like, um, I'm going to, uh, give you a couple of things here we, 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 which you taught me and, and I still use today is, and it reminds me of um, as you know the first one is as the tree grows or as the tree grows 
you know, uh, as the wind blows, the wind so blows. the tree grows. Yeah, sorry, as the wind blows, the tree tree grows, and you can see that with you know parents living their life through their kids. Uh, yeah. But the other one is, as I say to you, and I'm almost 100 percent sure you said this to me. Unless someone's knocking, basically beating your door down to ask for advice, don't, don't be going out there telling them because you can get in some serious uh, discussions or arguments with parents when you have the best vested interest in, in the in the in the kid, but the 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 parent is that's that's not their dream or goal for that kid, you know? Right. Um, you know, um, Carl Jung says all children are tasked with the unfinished life of their parents yeah 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 so if a parent didn't make enough money to be stable then they want the child to do it if the parent doesn't know how to get along with their spouse then ultimately the child is going to have to figure out how to do that on their own because they've had no model for it if the parent doesn't know how to have fun then the child is tasked with learning to have fun or getting a disease and emulating the whole family yeah yeah so uh, what advice would you offer for parents to help them better support their children's athletic development? Well, I suppose the, the biggest thing that I can offer, and, and you know, like um, <clears throat> two things. One is what I've seen work really well is, is, and it goes back to the holistic development of an athlete. Not only the athlete, let's say, the holistic development of the team, the organization. And when you get to that level of leadership or understanding of the transformational um, philosophies or strategies that need to be placed, then what you do is you you bring the, the parent is on this journey as well. So they are part of the education process. And so we, we would have, for example, um, education uh, evenings for parents. And some of, these, great. some of these things will be touching some raw nerves in them. But if you do it in the right way, what they're doing is it's opening their eyes up to, oh, heck, you know, by me being me as in the parent, I'm actually having a bad influence on the my child, you know? Uh, right. So that's, that's, that's part of the journey. But also I would say, and as, as uh, accompanies all this, is maturing those individuals, whether they're the athlete or the um, parent themselves. And when I talk about maturing, I suppose the best word I can use to – give a snapshot of what I mean there, is upgrading their thinking, upgrading yes. the way that they're living and thinking about their lives, you know? Which is coupled, in my opinion, with taking responsibility for yourself instead yes. of waiting for somebody else to tell you what to do or until the bottom falls out to go, oops, what did I do wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, what I always do in the environments I work in now is this is, this is a, a – a symbiotic relationship, and it's not a passive relationship. It's an active relationship where you're active in your own development. You take responsibility for your own development. So if things aren't going the way you think they should be going, then challenge me or ask questions, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, something that I've seen cause a lot of damage, which is a – it's not just – the American culture, it's pretty much worldwide. And and I've seen a lot of athletes give up on themselves because they lost. It happens a lot in the fight game. You know, you, you know, I have a long history in training fighters and being one. For example, I've seen fighters that might have a record like 79 and nine, 
which is pretty damn good. Yeah. And then they lose three fights in a row and they're ready to completely give up because they just feel defeated and they, they don't, they lose their sense of confidence in themselves. And then of course, coaches start putting pressure on athletes saying, you know, you're, you're a loser. You're, you're not going to accomplish anything. You got to get your shit together, you know, kind of like a military, <laughs> a military dad. Yeah. So, I learned over the years, if you can shift an athlete's concept from being a loser to being a learner and saying, okay, so the guy beat you or the last three guys beat you. Have you studied film? Have you looked at your own performance? Have you looked at how you are managing yourself, your emotions, your use of drugs, uh, you know, your four doctor management? Mm. Because you can you can collapse into yourself with a poor me syndrome and play out the victim mentality, but it sure as hell ain't going to help advance your athletic career. If you look at yourself as somebody who can be grateful that there's somebody good enough to actually show you that there's still something to learn, then you can actually honor the person that beat you as a teacher. So I'm wondering in your you know, now very extensive experience with coaching athletes at many, many different levels. What do you feel would happen culturally if we could get coaches, parents, and teachers to adopt a winners and learners strategy versus a winners and losers strategy? Well, I mean, it, well, the things you've just spoken about there are the things that I've been implementing. Um, and they're, they're quite new to, the concepts are quite new because, yes, you know, there's this winner-loser type uh, mentality that, uh, presides over most uh, sports teams or even in business it was still resides. Um, so I, I teach my athletes exactly what you said. I want you to have an L plate around you from the day you start to the day you finish. Because you What's an L plate? An L plate is a learner's plate, you know? So it's, Oh, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, so we have an L plate on the, on the cars when you're learning to drive. It's the same thing. Like, you, you're never going to know it all. And the other thing I say, you know, like, um, if you are mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually developing yourself and strengthening, greasing that wheel every day, you know, you become a very hard person to beat. Even on your bad day, you're going to still be pretty good, you know? Yeah, because you got a better chance of recovering your composure because you have some strategies for it. That's right. Um, it's like a snowball going down a mountain. You, you create momentum and, you know, like um, – if, you, if you're investing even five minutes a day into those things, now five minutes is such a small amount of time, but over time, you know, <clears throat> Einstein said the um, the eighth law of the eighth law of uh, what's it? The eighth law should have been the law of um, geez, it's just what was it called? Um, was it law of momentum or something like that? But basically, what he was saying is when you um, when you create that momentum and it, the ball gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, um, and so you become stronger. And like you said, when I have an athlete like that and I know he's doing the work, whether it's studying, studying film, like you said, or studying uh, old philosophies of the game, because you can still learn in the fight game. It doesn't matter what game you're in, the small things you can learn and say, geez, I never thought of that. That could be another thing I could add to my repertoire. But when you, when you come up against someone who does beat you and you've got the L plate on, you think, I'm going to shake that guy's hand because he just taught me another lesson today. You know? Exactly. I used to say to people, when I was a fighter, I trained so hard and was so committed. I used to tell the coaches, 
if anybody can beat me, I'm going to be the first guy to hug and kiss that person because I'm going to make them earn it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and, and so when I got beat in any sport, I really honored the people that beat me. And, um, I think that inspired me to, um, ask myself, how did they outperform me when I was a triathlete triathlete? I know from being a triathlete for many years and hanging out with a lot of the guys, as soon as it would get real windy or start pissing rain, they would make excuses about why they weren't going to do their cycling that day or, yeah, you know, whatever it might be. And my, my approach was, ah, today's the day I get an edge on my competition because most of them are going to give up today. So I'd be out in nasty ass rains with huge headwinds with my head down, just grinding away. And so, you know, those are the kind of strategies I use. And I, and I, because I trained that with that level of commitment, when I got beat, I knew whoever that was, they either had an iron will or they had an iron will with tremendous skill and who better to study than that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How important, uh, or actually, could you share some of your favorite resources for those interested in studying the art of coaching athletes and, or mental emotional development, particularly for athletes or, or anybody? You know, um, I honestly think Paul, the, the, um, the, the the some of the philosophy we're talking about here, you know, like if you go to if you go to university and you get a, um, a, a master's degree or PhD in engineering, it's actually graded above uh, a, a degree in uh, philosophy. And yet, you know, the the, the real difficulties you're going to have if you're working with an athlete, and 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 yeah, he's got a he's got a sublux atlas or some of that. Well, we can we know how to fix that, but dealing with the emotional aspects of how to fix them and the spiritual aspects and even the mental things, they take some real work, you know? Yes, they do. And and so it, it, it's interesting to me that, that that we grade, you know, in university, someone with a master's or PhD in engineering above that of someone who's got one in philosophy. And the social sciences fit into the philosophy. And so the things we're talking about, um, and you're asking me to give some resources you know, for those that, those that are new to this path, or even if you've been on this path for quite some time, what I'd highly recommend is this book here. It's um, called Coherence by Dr. Alan Watkins. And he was a cardiologist uh, who who basically realized that he could have a bigger impact on people if he went into the leadership space. And I was given this book by a friend of mine who works in leadership as well, and I looked at it, and it's, it was a reasonably thick book, and I thought, oh, geez, I've got enough books in my library at the moment. I've studied quite a bit of this stuff. But it had um, had some work in there about spiral dynamics. And I, Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, so when I opened the book on spiral dynamics, I thought, this guy must be onto something if he understands spiral dynamics. He's bringing this into sport, you know? So... Um, <clears throat> I really highly recommend that book as a great starting point because it will open up people's eyes to human evolution. He talks about all that. He talks about he worked with the uh, British rowing team at the Olympics. Wow. They became the most uh, successful team. He talks about not only the, the the physiology but the psychology behind these things. Um, so it, it crosses a lot of boundaries in terms of looking at the whole complete athlete. You know. Yeah, and just for the listeners that don't know what spiral dynamics is, spiral dynamics is a system that 
categorizes values in, in a hierarchy, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So at the bottom, for example, in Claire Graves' model, you have beige, which means you're you're sick or you're broken and you're totally dependent on the support of your family, which then goes to purple, which is the family, which goes to red, which is the equivalent of uh, going through puberty and rejecting the leadership of your father or your your chief, which then goes to blue, which is organized religion, organized business, anything where there's policies, procedures, and systems that have to be followed and uniforms to be worn, which then goes to orange, which is a reemergence of the red, the rebel who who disagrees with the way things are being done, but often plays both sides against each other to maximize their earning potential. The oranges are usually the highest earners in any organization, but the most dangerous to the organization because they almost always end up leveraging the organization for more money or part ownership. So they're like double agents. Then it goes to green, which is green peace and um, egalitarian beliefs, equality for all. And that is what's called the first tier. The second tier is yellow and turquoise and only about 2% of the world population crosses the threshold of green to yellow. Yellow is high level management. Someone who's got a lot of life experience has transcended and included all the values that I've just described and knows how to manage people effectively. But the key thing between the yellow and the turquoise is the yellow person is still conscious that they're in the game for their own growth. And that the very top is turquoise where you're dealing with the problems of the world, existential dichotomies uh, and, you know, things like cultural problems. So there you have, for example, the Dalai Lama. Um, so those wondering what spiral dynamics is, if you just take those values, stack them up and create a spiral that goes from one stair step to the next, you, you have the equivalent of spiral dynamics. Yeah, and, the, and and so that that book I highly recommend, and the other thing I highly recommend, Paul, and uh, you know, like I was never, I haven't been asked to say this or anything like that, but I highly recommend your personal um, uh, mastery program. Oh, uh, P personal professional yeah. spiritual success mastery, yeah. PPSSuccess.com. Yeah, and that's the twelve lessons that I created by surveying all the athletes and people that I'd worked with. And just noting what were the most common things that I saw getting in the way of them achieving their dreams, goals, or objectives, whether it be getting over a disease or healing back pain or uh, staying at a high level of athletic competition. And the lessons are designed to be done in the order because they start off with the foundation principles, like what is my dream, goal, or objective? How do I manage my mind and how do I effectively set goals? And then from there, it goes into the 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 common issues, but those fo the following nine lessons don't have the impact because if you don't get the first three lessons right, you're building on a shaky foundation to begin with. Yeah, and and that that really was was a massive uh, juncture in my own development, and I've put on, I've used a lot of that information with my athletes I've worked with, business people I've worked with, and things like that, um, and 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 also. You know, as I said before, the, the the principle I was trying to think of with Einstein was the compound effect. I used the word right. momentum, but it's the same thing. But I can remember um, attending one of your workshops, and the guy who was the all-black nutritionist at the time was with me, and uh, he, he looked at me and he goes, how does that guy know all this stuff? <laughs> you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> I, said, I said, 
I don't know, but I want to learn that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and after, you know, working with you and, and learning off you over so many years, it was about immersing yourself and, and, and getting good, good habits and, um, studying every day and stuff like that. So now I have people say to me, how the hell do you know all your shit? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and there's, there's the principle of the elder right there. Yeah. I yeah, basically, yeah. I functioned as an elder to you and all the Czech professionals and said, Hey, here's where I screwed up. <laughs> you don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but any other resources? Uh, no, I think those are the, that's what I'd say. I've got, I've got tons. Like if, if people want to contact me at the end of this, I've got, uh, reading lists that I've put out and things like that. And I've got tons of those, uh, tons of courses I've done, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I'm more than happy to share that, that list, which I have on my computer. Um, but yeah, th- those two I would, I would highly, highly recommend to get st- stuck into those, you know. Okay. I appreciate that. I'm glad you found PPS Success Master useful. I've been, fortunate to have a number of people share that opinion so that always makes me feel good that it's helping people all right well my next question greg is how important do you feel working in is for athletes and what ways did you implement inner self-management strategies with yourself and your athletes Uh, i think it's crucial and uh, it's a massive part of uh, anyone's own development and and self-management uh, I'll be honest, that journey for me has not been easy. Um, I suppose, like many athletes, you know, like probably more than like the type A personalities, uh, right. who are busy, they want to, they're high performers, they're, they're perfectionists. Um, they don't want to stop and, 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 you know, they want to keep moving. Right. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I've struggled. I suppose the word battles with it a lot, but, um, you know, through perseverance and I've worked really hard at that because, you know, I've really wanted to improve myself in every aspect of my life. Um, I've persevered through it and tried lots of different things. And, uh, now it's, it's part of my daily routine. So I would, uh, in the past, I might've, if you said to me, sit and meditate for 10 minutes, I would have, geez, how can I do that? And, you know, that, that 10 minutes would be like, eternity now i can do an hour's meditation every day and it's you know it's just part of my life now um and it's made a huge huge difference in terms of how i can empathize with people um how i have better emotional control um better clarity on the things i'm going to invest my life force into yes um all those types of things you know what are the see psychologically I'll, I'll use a kind of a depth psychology approach to explain what you've just described, which is extremely common. And it's, it's very, very much more common, as I'm sure you know, in the Western cultures than the Eastern cultures. Because, you know, in, in the Chinese culture where Taoism comes from and in the uh, Indian culture where Hinduism comes from, meditative practices are much more inherently part of their culture. Yeah. But – the real way to categorize the challenge you've just described is called externalization of the self, which means we fall into the trap of identifying ourselves by what we're, what we have achieved and what we're trying to achieve or what we're trying to do or where we've got to go or how much money we think we have to make. Mm. But the trap is that we begin to 
base our sense of self-worth, self-value, and self-esteem only on our accomplishments. And as we've just talked about with winners and losers and injuries and children that are not being effectively parented or managed by their parents, and they're measuring themselves on you know, whether or not daddy gave me approval uh, of how I played today, and it leads to a person only feeling loved by other people when they're hitting key markers that are almost always established by people outside of themselves. And then we go right back to me teaching strength coaches the importance of identifying the athlete's own dream goal and objective instead of just writing a workout on the board that 30 athletes are going to do at the same time. Meanwhile, not realizing that half of those athletes, it's too hard for them. Five of the athletes in the group are deconditioning now because they're in better condition than the group. And there's a handful of guys in the middle that it's just right for. So externalizing the self leads to a tremendous amount of problem because your sense of self-worth and self-value and who you are in your own relationship to yourself becomes externalized and objectified only by what you have done or accomplished or not done or not accomplished relative to some you know, moving target that's usually produced by either somebody else or that you've been programmed to believe in. Like, you know, I, I've worked with the children of a lot of rich people and a lot of them are having a crisis of self because their internal mechanism is I'm not successful until I can meet or exceed what my father has done or my mother has done. Yeah. Well, what do you do when your dad's got $80 million in the bank and you're 25 and you're trying to figure out how you're going to supersede that? So what happens is a person can go into a complete crisis of self. But if you can teach a person to develop an intimate relationship with themselves and explore their inner world and ask questions like, who am I really? And what is my life all about? And what is ultimately happy making for me? And how does money or accomplishments at the end of the day enhance my ability to endure the challenges of life? Well, you find out it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many medals you have. Mm. A divorce can still level you. A death in the family can still level you. And the things that level us are the things that are usually uh, what I would call spiritual realities. Like, you know, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. If your mother dies, it's going to take you to a place that you're not going to be equipped to deal with until you've spent enough time inside of yourself looking at what needs to die in you so you can become a happy person or what needs to die in you so you can get over the expectations of others yet still do a good job because you're doing it for yourself. Yeah. And, you know, what is it? You know, uh, I'll give you an example. You know, I think you know I teach um, – Exer uh, courses on breathing and movement and the science of breathing and how important it is, how proper breathing is so critical to athletic performance and general health and how breathing has to be done correctly during weightlifting to optimize performance and minimize the risk of injury. And of the, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of students that I've taught all over the world, I ask this question, what is it that is making you breathe. Mm. And even people with advanced training in breathing and have gone to various breathing workshops all over the world, not one single person has ever been able to tell me that. 
And I explained to them, it's only because of my Tai Chi and meditation and Qigong practices that I can get deep enough into myself to connect myself to the cosmos, to the world, and to the universe and ask the question. And what I tell them is, you're being breathed by the whole universe because everything in the universe is breathing because the two fundamental forces that create the universe are yin, emptiness, and desire, which is inhalation, to draw in. A woman's uterus is empty, and if it wasn't empty, there'd be no space for new life. And that creates a force of desire without which the women would have no desire to get pregnant and perpetuate the race. And the emptiness in us, we all know that nature abhors a vacuum. You buy a new house. It's a big house. You move in and you think, oh, my God, I've got so much space. And two years later, the thing's chock a block with stuff. And you go, oh, my God, our house is too small. But most of it's just junk. (laughs) Right. So you see that emptiness breathes into itself and fullness exhales. We fill our lungs with air. Now the emptiness is full but we need to transform it to make room for life because life is a transitional process. So the point that I'm making is it's been amazing to me that so many people that are experts in breathing don't even understand what breathing is or how it is. And then I say, look, if you study atoms, they're constantly bringing energy in and exchanging energy. If you look at the, the atom as a field of action, which is 99.999 to the ninth, uh, sixth decimal place empty, it's obviously bringing energy in or it would not be able to hold its structure. So the point that I make is then if you look at nature, trees are breathing in our carbon dioxide and breathing out oxygen. All living things are breathing because the entire cosmos is breathing. You are being breathed by the cosmos. And that's why it's so hard to kill yourself by just holding your breath because you are not just who you think you are. You are an expression of the entire universe and it's living and breathing through you. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm only using that as an example to say, look, without working in, you never really figure out what life is about. You don't even know what you're about. You don't know what life is for. You're just doing what everybody else is doing, even when it has hurt them and continues to hurt you. Yeah. So, and you, you and I both know that athletic development and achieving high level athletic success or success in business or a high level of competency in, in, in relationship with your wife or your kids takes a lot of work and a, And it doesn't matter how many workshops you take. If you don't grow on the inside, then you're just a a person who can't get along with people and has challenges and a lot of certificates on the wall. Yeah. 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 Did did you ever try getting the athletes to do things like breathing squats or any of the typical zone exercises? Yeah. Yeah. Done that quite a lot, even even, uh, to the point of some players – uh, feeling a little bit low on energy before games and getting them to do that sort of stuff, zone exercises and stuff like that, just to calm them down. And uh, it's worked, you know, phenomenally. Great. So, uh, yeah, and and, and um, it would be relatively common now that uh, teams are, are, are looking at meditative practices. Um, you know, like, look, it's a starting point. Um, they're probably... 
uh, in the very infancy of that. And it's like anything, it takes time before people really understand what these things mean and how they should be properly applied. But like I said, it's a starting point, you know? Well, you know, the the good news is that largely because of John Kabat-Zinn and all the research he's done on mindfulness, there's now just mountains of research. I've probably studied three university courses on mindfulness now, not because I need them so much, but because I'm very interested in what research is saying relative to my own inner experience and my experience of teaching it to people. But really kind of the, the pillars of mindfulness is one, awareness. You have to be aware of what's happening. And most people aren't aware of what's happening until they're in pain. Then they just take drugs to get rid of the messenger. Yeah. Two, you have to have intention. You have to be, and this is where we have to have a clear goal, dream, or objective to, to guide our energy and our intention because energy in the body always follows thought. Wherever your awareness goes and your intention goes, your energy goes. Yeah. And if too much of it's going outside of you, well, then you end up you know, like a bodybuilder that's got lots of muscles, but they're very sick on the inside or an athlete that is what I call a fit sick person. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then the third pillar that you can say is a key hallmark of mindfulness is presence to actually be present and there again if you're externalized you're never present with yourself you're not present with the food you're eating it's it's amazing to me when i watch people eat how many people eat so fast they're not even tasting the food they wouldn't know if they were eating mcdonald's versus gourmet food because their their eating habits are reflecting their mental emotional habits yeah and, you know, like um, in, in, in athlete terms, <clears throat> I suppose, the, the, the taste of the divine, you know, when you get that, that small glimpse or that small taste of it, it brings you back each time. It's like hitting a good golf shot. You know, you might not hit one for three months, but when you hit it, it's enough to bring you back, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and what I try to impress upon the athletes is when you can get that, when you have that level of um, – in a work done, it's almost that flow state, that flow state you get as an athlete when there's rare times and we'll go for a run or you're in just totally in the zone in the game and everything just seems so easy, you know? Yes. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful experience. And the thing that I try to encourage people to realize is that through choosing to give yourself a chance to calm inside and to just relax your mind. You know, a lot of people have a hard time with meditative type practices because they keep thinking, saying, I can't stop my mind. And I let them know you don't stop a mind. A mind is designed to think. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like trying to stop the weather. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what you can do is witness a mind and by witnessing your thoughts, you can get to the point where you can detach from them, watch them like a movie, but not be sucked in and not identify yourself with them. Then you take what's unconscious and you bring it up into the conscious where it can become objectified. You can say, there is my thought that I'm insecure. There is my thought that I'm not good enough. There is my thought that my girlfriend's cheating on me, but is it really true? And is it empowering me to keep thinking that thought when there's really potentially no objective evidence in my life. You know, Ken Wilber says you cannot change yourself 
spiritually or mentally or emotionally until you bring the unconscious into the conscious or the subjective into a state of objectivity. So when you identify, boy, I really have a habit of beating myself up because you're sitting there watching your thoughts instead of just getting trapped in them and and suffocating in them. Mm. Then you get to the place where you now have a reference point. You can see your own fears, your own emotions, and your own thoughts and then you can begin to consciously edit your story and say, well, that's, those are not the thoughts of a champion. Those are not the thoughts of someone who's going to last very long in a relationship. Those are not the thoughts of somebody who's going to be an effective parent. Yeah. And from that place, you can say, now I can learn how to use my meditation as a means of identifying what I can consciously edit out of my story and replace with something that's dream affirmative. Yeah. And as you know, people are looking for noise to prevent themselves from getting to that point, you know? Well, you know, and the challenge of that is, is like, I'm sure you've seen this countless times. If you go into gyms and listen to the music, a lot of athletes are listening to, it's enough to just, (laughs) it's the opposite of harmony, right? It's just total chaos. And I've had many people approach me in, in interviews and things and say, why do you think People in gyms and athletes seem to listen to such lousy, head-banging, heavy metal, death, scream, swear music. Mm. And I say, well, in my opinion, it's because they're using a homeopathic. The music is mirroring the state that they're in. So if you listen to music that's as chaotic as your inner state, oddly enough, they cancel each other out. And because people are in such a chaotic state, it takes chaos to stop chaos. Just like if you have two cars heading at each other going 30 miles an hour, when they hit, they'll both go to zero because they cancel each other out. If one's going 50 and one going 30, when they hit, the guy going 30 is going to get pushed down the road for about 40 yards. Yeah, yeah. So using the law of similars, we can see where a person's internal state is at by what they need to medicate themselves with externally to force the unwind to take place. And I can tell you, Paul, from experience, I had nearly World War III on my hands when I pulled the plug on some of those, uh, those that, that music that's been going on in the gyms I've been working in. <laughs> oh, I bet, yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's wild, though, and for me as a therapist with the level of development that I have inside of myself – it's as though you're watching people eat the worst food that you could possibly buy and thinking it's great food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that regard, where do you feel athletes are in general with diet approaches today? Um, I, I think there's been, there has been a massive improvement in that uh, because the, 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 the knowledge, you know, like we're in the information age and the, the amount of knowledge is out there now and uh, well, trainers – are generally a lot more educated in those things, and they're also constantly looking for what what's important, uh, what's going to help. So we're, we're a lot better off. Um, there's still a ways to go, um, but I also say, and this is another area where I suppose I'm working quite a bit. Is you know often if, if you hire a nutritionist, every problem's a, a diet problem. You know. Yeah. Um, so you just got to be careful on how you prioritize things. Um, look, we both know that the diet is massively, massively important. Um, but you've got to be very careful that you don't invest too much time. If you're looking at, I'm talking now about athletic performance, um, that you go overboard in that particular area when you've got a game 
uh, coming up in the weekend. You know what I mean? You mean because it it uh, complicates things too much for them? Yeah, it complicates too much for them, or their their energy's been put too, too invested too much in, into areas that yes, they're vitally important and and they they provide the basis for um, performance in terms of the energy and things like that. <clears throat> but if you don't know the game plan, um, then you're in trouble. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, I think one of the strategies for dealing with that is that right when the season begins and they come in for preseason training, the the dietary concept should be in, included included as a progressive drip feed. Yeah. Let's talk about fats today, and then later on, let's talk about hydration. Then let's talk about the difference between fats and proteins and let's talk about carbohydrates and how much do you really need and what are the signs and symptoms of too much or too little of each of these things. Okay. Now that you know that eating too much fat can leave you feeling very full, but hungry at the same time, how many of you have experienced that before? And of course, half the room's hands go up. Well, now you know what it is. Yeah. 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 And, And here's what you do about it. And you know, one of the, one of the first strategies I tell people is, don't focus about the technical aspects of diet. Focus on quality first. Just explain the importance of high-quality food versus low-quality food because if you make the transition from commercial food to organic food, you've already increased the performance and the vitality of the athlete significantly enough that if you get caught in the fine details and they get caught in overanalyzing and feeling frustrated because they can't eat this chocolate bar or whatever, you've got the cart in front of the horse. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know you've used a, sorry. Uh, I know you've used a lot of science and uh, work with various physiologists and scientists to, to enhance athletic performance and management. I'm wondering if you can share some of the highlights of what you learned and what works well or what doesn't work so well when you're you know, using that sort of scientific approach. Um, I, I think you know anybody that's been in the game a long time um, realizes that. The, the science, yes, it's important, um, but as as you, I suppose, get better at what you're doing, get more experienced. Um, I can go back to a conversation that you had with, um, what's his, oh, I'm just trying to think of his name now, um, from Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, oh, Matt Nickel. Matt Nickel, yeah, when I went up and visited Mac, Matt, and he had uh, just invested in this, what was it called, some new... Uh, I can't remember the name of the, the equipment now, but it's been twenty thousand. And it, it consulted with you about buying it, and you said, "Well, you can get that thing, and uh, but you can tell that athlete with that even put plug him into that that he's already screwed up, and he's not eating the good food. He's not doing these things, you know." So yeah, um, and I guess as you get more experience, you realise that you don't need a crutch of, of science or, or printouts on a computer to tell someone that they're not actually doing the right things. Um, you can see by someone's gait that they've got some problem with their pelvis or their hamstrings or, you know, you know those sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, science has also taken us a long way in terms of development of some of the decisions we'll make or some of the things we do. It's just how much you invest in, in chasing those things or going down that path. And in the past, for example, we were, we were um, developing um, – these documents, which were taking us a long time, we were staying up late at night. We were measuring, you know, right down to the total tonnage players were lifting, those types of things. Um, but often missing the key things that were happening. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the, 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 the science that I was involved with, which is really the, the Star Trek technology uh, with Dr. Christian Cook, what we did is we um, essentially did uh, electrosonophoresis testing, which was the first in the world to do that um, with sports teams. And, and that was uh, drawing out the interstitial fluid and then taking real-time, or as close as we could to real-time, hormonal markers of where players are at, uh, testosterone, melatonin, looking at the creatine kinase, the enzyme there, um, uh, serotonin levels, cortisol. Cortisol. Yeah, yeah, those types of things. So looking at stress and how even the travel, when we traveled into South Africa, we took the team with us and made the research over there um, and looked at, looked at those things. So that was... Uh, in terms of looking at textbook um, research, that really turned our heads about how we were doing our recovery and what we were doing with our athletes. That was a big turning point and probably led in a big way to develop my own products, you know, why I developed those, how we're recovering athletes and stuff like that. Well, because we're short on time and I know you've got to get going, I don't want to stress you out. Uh, let's jump to that. Um you have created excellent products, which I use myself. Thank you very much. And uh, they're very good. Um, can you share what some of the products are that you've developed and a little bit about that before we run out of time? Sure. Well, you know, like um, like I said, with the research, what we found is uh, that one of, one of the things that helped with um, the development or helping players lower cortisol levels or just recover was bathing. And if you look at the ancient, uh, you know, like the Romans were using bathing years and years ago. Um, and so, you know, with studying through the Czech Institute and stuff like that, it was introducing me to all these different things, you know, so, so many different things I've never even heard of before. And that's why we limp our, our limitations of our mind or our ability to perform at higher levels um, is only limited by what we were exposing ourselves to. And, you know, you'd introduced me to flower essences and, you know, all these different things. So I started studying um, <clears throat> what sort of oils we could put into the to the salts um, yeah. and stuff like that. So I made a mixture initially of bath salts um, with 15 essential oils <clears throat> to help regenerate or rejuvenate the body, help with um, the muscle damage and muscle sores and stuff like that. So that's one of the products, the bath salts. We also have uh, oils for massage, um, things like heat rub and things like that. But it's all um, natural oils because, as we know, like you know, putting in any uh, any foreign substances on, even onto the body, it still absorbs into the body. So you know, it's all aligned to that type of thinking. But it's it's another element in terms of body care, you know. Um, right. So it's a really important aspect of it. I know you have some soaps as well because yeah. uh, you've sent me some of those and those are really nice. And I must say, you know, I'll sometimes when my body gets sore, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep because I'm moving around or whatever, or I've just trained really hard. Sometimes when I'm lifting stones, I get into these weird angles and off balance situations and can, you know, really work areas like my upper back and neck or my mid thoracic really hard. And I'll just be aching like I've you know, done max lifts, which I have, and I'll use your bath salts. And I swear I get out of that bathtub after about 25 or 30 minutes of just soaking with your salts. And it feels like I've 
had a very thorough massage. Like my whole body is very relaxed. It's, um, mm. it's, I remember the first time I used them, I went, wow, Greg's really actually made something a lot better than a standard bath salt. Cause I have used plenty of those. So yeah. great job on that. Thanks. Yeah. Where the, where do people find out uh, more about your products or you or courses or anything that you're offering? Um, so my for the products, uh, as part of this, we're offering 20% off. So if anyone wants to visit uh, pure-athlete.com and use the code uh, PA20OFF, PA20OFF, they'll get 20% off um, any products they purchase. And for my personal work that I do, which is the leadership and performance consultancy, it's um, leadthepack.net, leadthepack.net. So I have um, different things I offer on there as well. Well, if you had, uh, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow and you had the chance to give a message to the world that would be aired on public television worldwide, what would it be? Jeez, good question. That one, isn't it? Um, what, would it <laughs> what would it be? Um, I think live in harmony more with with, with each other and uh, uh, and with, with what we do. Stop stop trying as hard. You know, I, someone said that to me just recently, and uh, I was at a lecture, and I thought, you know what, you know, I, I've worked I worked really hard, and, and 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 it goes back to that meditation, you know, and getting in touch with our inner self, just being at peace with that, and then I can be happy walking down the beach, which is just hundred meters from my house, and uh, with my dog and. I'm cool with that. Whereas before, I'd have been racing around and trying to change everything, you know. Um, yeah, and and that makes a huge difference because the energy that you have or you bring to any um, any opportunity that you're in in life is completely different. And people probably uh, are, are a lot more sympathetic or they'll, they'll relate to it better, you know. Well, I think that's a great message, Greg. Great sharing with you and. You and I've uh, been on a long journey together. I'm very, very proud of all the work you've done and the changes you've implemented in professional and amateur sports and your own development. And uh, great to see that the products you've developed are so good and, and that I get to enjoy them. And uh, many blessings on your journey and continue your uh, inner work. I think it's very, very exciting. You know, I've watched you grow a lot in my career. So uh, I'm excited that you found that inner space. Thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks for all the work you've done. And uh, you know, I know I've thanked you a number of times, but uh, you know, the the, the dent you've made, left or, or, or uh, continued to leave in the world is is massive. And uh, I've been a huge advocate of anybody I come across to say, look, you got to go study this stuff. You know, if you want to be in the top of your game, that's where where it's at. You know, and um, uh, I think that that makes a huge difference in the world, and it makes makes the world a better place. You know, well. If I leave before you, I'll be waiting for you to party wherever we end up. And uh, yeah. uh, if you leave before me, well, then make sure you find the espresso machine and some good smoke, would you? <laughs> I will do, man. I will. All right. Lots of, lots of love. Safe travel. I know you're running out the door to a consulting appointment. So uh, I really enjoyed our time together. And uh, thanks for sharing. And uh, we'll probably do this again someday. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Eh? All right. Big hug. Gee, man. See you, man. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Greg Muller. You can follow Greg on Twitter at LeadThePack1 and on Facebook at the Pure Athlete page. 
Greg is offering listeners a 20% discount of all Pure Athlete products. Please visit pure-athlete.com and enter the code PA20OFF at checkout. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.